And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hello, welcome to Dave Does Podcasts. I am David Weeder. This show is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. And I know that this episode is kind of jumping the gun in comparison to what I promised, which is the Back to the Future episode on October 26th. That episode is still forthcoming on that exact date. This does not change that in any way, shape, or form. I'll be honest with you, I was just really excited to get back on the microphone. I'm a little out of practice, and once I was able to say, yes, I'm going to change the show itself and open the doors to all kinds of topics, well, I got really excited to start talking about those topics. And one of the things that stood out to me as one of the topics that I was just ready and just chomping at the bit to talk about was Star Trek, especially Star Trek's 50th anniversary. So when it lined up that I wanted to do an episode on my birthday to celebrate my birthday, and it is indeed Star Trek's 50th anniversary, well, I saw the best excuse I've ever had to talk about Star Trek. And, you know, as that thought process grew and grew, I started really thinking about how relevant it is that 50 years later, Star Trek is still a franchise. We've had a movie earlier this year. We have a new TV show in development as we speak. I mean, essentially, this original, the original series is what I'm referring to, just to be clear. The original series spawned three film franchises, and yes, you could look at it as one franchise. Some people do. But ultimately, if you take the original crew movies, next-gen movies, and the new Trek movies, they're three very distinct, very recognizably different franchises. If you want to lump them under the same banner, that's fine with me. But also, it's spawned four, almost five, now with Star Trek Discovery on its way, five spin-off shows. Not to mention the video games, the comics, the merchandise, the novels, etc., etc. Now, by comparison, I'm hitting my 39th birthday as you hear this. I've produced a few podcasts here and there. One book, one dog, one wife. Nothing quite to the scale of Star Trek, so I'm actually here more to celebrate Star Trek than myself. It just seemed like a good synchronous moment to debut a new chapter on my birthday talking about a franchise's major birthday and milestone. If we're being honest about it, Star Trek is kind of like Gary Busey. It should have been dead a long, long time ago, and yet it's still here, still thriving, still thrilling people. I'm going to pull your endocrine system out of your body. And yes, I do find Gary Busey very thrilling. And ultimately, as I thought through that, I came to the conclusion of exactly why Star Trek cannot be killed, why it will never die, why generations from now people will still be talking about Star Trek, and there will be still new Star Trek to be celebrated. And lo and behold, there came my topic. So this time around, I'm going to be talking about why you simply cannot, will not, and never will kill Star Trek. And to do that, I'm going to invite you aboard my vessel here. Yes, this is my windowless van with the warp nacelles on top. And you bet your ass, that is a airbrushed portrait of Patrick Swayze as a centaur on the side. That's right, this is my vehicle, the USS Point Break. And it's going to take us on our journey, so if you'll bear with me, I'm going to lay in the course... Fire up the warp drive and then kick on the 8-track and we are going to take a journey into exploring why you can't kill Star Trek. If you're ready, I'm ready. Engage.
basically the reason Star Trek is still around is because Star Trek's already died and risen from the grave like some awesome badass zombie. To put it in context, in the 1960s, this was a network television show, and network television shows have kind of two levels that they work on. Sure, there's the critical artistic side, wanting to make good, entertaining shows, but realistically, this is also a product, and a product is put out there not only to merchandise, but to bring in revenue via advertisers. And one of the main things that has both killed Star Trek and brought it back is the numbers. Hear me out here. One of the uh, secondary function is to bring eyes onto the screen, not only for the merchandising, etc. of the show, but because of the commercials, the revenue. The more eyes that are on a TV show, the more can be charged for that ad space and more revenue in the pockets of network executives. Bathroom break or not, we need eyes on those ads. If a show just fails that, well, it's time to change it up. It's time to do something completely different. And to be honest, Star Trek was a failure. Not a complete and absolute failure, but essentially it treaded water when it was on the network. It never really thrived in the way of, say, I Love Lucy, Andy Griffith Show, Leave It to Beaver, nothing like that at all. It had its small, vocal, passionate group of fans at this time. There were people that were watching, but just not enough, and the numbers eventually brought the show down. Here's the flip side to that. Those numbers, which brought the show down, also kind of helped the show. It helped it survive today. Cancellation is the best thing that ever happened to Star Trek. On a critical level, it helped Star Trek not outstay its welcome. I mean, if you look at the third season of Star Trek, you know that quality was kind of starting to go downhill there. There were still some decent episodes in there, but if you extrapolate the lowering and diminishing and diluting of the quality, if you extrapolate that out, you know, say two more seasons up to the fifth season, well, it's not going to be a good show. It's not going to be fondly remembered. But if you cancel it at 79 episodes, suddenly there's this mystique to the show that it never really reached its potential, that there's this untapped resource and reservoir of creative wealth in there somewhere. Let me play the numbers for you a little bit when you think about this. The original series is still iconic. It only had 79 episodes. If you really want to put the 22 animated episodes in there for fun, sure, go ahead. Doesn't dilute my point at all. Star Trek The Next Generation had 178 episodes. Make it so, number one. Deep Space Nine had 176 Voyager had 172, and even the, well, what's considered by some circles to be the bastard stepchild of the franchise. An assertion that I would actually fight against, but Enterprise itself had 98 episodes. All of these spin-offs had more episodes than the original Star Trek. And yet, it's the original Enterprise that sits in the Smithsonian. It's Kirk and Spock's catchphrases that become echoes and icons and really just ingrained deeply into the fabric of American pop culture as well as international pop culture. Picard, Sisko, and Janeway, you know, they certainly have their fans. Those shows are relevant. They're part of the lore. And the main thing is, if you look at why they don't have the icon status, all of the spinoff shows had conclusions. We had closure. Deep Space Nine concluded the long, ongoing plot. Next Generation turned the show into one ongoing plot in a genius move. Voyager completed their voyage, and then Enterprise even had a way to wrap it up and link it up to the more familiar trappings of Star Trek. The second reason cancellation is the best thing that ever happened to Star Trek is that Star Trek found its way onto syndication. There were enough episodes to put it in different markets. This meant that rather than being trapped in a very confining primetime time slot... This show could be seen at any time. It could be late at night, so insomniacs get addicted. In the afternoon, so you have the housewives watching bored, or right after school, the kids can get hooked on Star Trek. It found its audience. It found its numbers. It's found its calling in syndication. And that small but vocal group of passionate fans, they grew and they grew and they grew and they found each other. 
They created fan fiction. They created a demand for more because of that untapped potential, because of the limited 79 episodes. And thanks to the cancellation and the syndication, Star Trek went from being just a show to being a thing, becoming a phenomenon, and finding other generations. Case in point, this guy right here, David Weider, who was born nearly a decade after Star Trek went off the air. It was a thing by the time I was coming into being. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, they were icons already. The whole beam me up Scotty, which is a misquote. He's dead Jim, live long and prosper. These were parts, big relevant parts of the pop culture lexicon by the time I was developing permanent memories. So that mystique brought this to another generation in which it could just grow and grow in the multitude. Now to put myself into the framework of the story here, the narrative, my first real memories are of motion picture Star Trek. Which, to talk a little bit about motion picture just as a quick, easy, in-and-out tangent, the motion picture is the culmination of that demand, where the numbers created so much demand that it went to the theaters. We continued those adventures. It reopened that wound and found a whole new audience. The motion picture is ultimately the ultimate completion of the original series. Wrath of Khan begins a whole new chapter. Motion picture closes out everything that the show worked towards. In V'ger and in Commander Decker and their merging... You kind of saw the ultimate completion of what could have been with Gary Mitchell. It also creates a really, really good callback to Nomad and the potential that could have occurred right there. And ultimately completes this, the original journey, and then allows things to open up to new, fresh franchise. Which is why I think the uniforms changing in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is so symbolic. Anyway, to bring it back to me and my relevance to Star Trek, or Star Trek's relevance to me, I'm not that egotistical... My first memory is of the motion picture with Kirk and crew walking on the saucer of the Enterprise and just realizing how big this thing is. Just how beautiful this ship is, the scope that we are working with. I'll be honest with you, the first stirrings of manhood within me kind of stem from two things. One would be Betty Rubble, the other would be the USS Enterprise 1701. NCC 1701. No bloody A. B, C, or D. And that scene in motion picture is one of the things that sealed up my love of the Enterprise. Now, I do want to be clear, even though that's my first clear memory, I knew the characters of Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. I knew these concepts, in a rudimentary way at least. Which is to say that Star Trek was familiar to me. Star Trek was a round. It was a thing. Not just a show, a thing. A part of the tapestry. Star Trek was like some badass, all-encompassing entity that everybody knew. Everybody had a little bit of it inside them, like some sort of demonic possession. And when it put its sights on you, there was no fighting it. There was no stopping it. Resistance was not gonna work. So how does Generation X inherit this? How does it become a thing? Well, it's easy. It's our parents. We learned it by watching with our parents. You are right. I learned it by watching you. So those numbers stayed with our parents and passed it on to us, and the fandom grew. And I'm going to come back to this point in a little bit. We're going to put the numbers to the side a little bit because it's getting a little repetitive. I'm going to go to a different area here. I really got into the show when uh, local channel 33, which at that time was unaffiliated with any network, but later would become the ABC affiliate here. This unaffiliated show was just kind of a local thing, and they would show the original series in the afternoon at 3 p.m. So from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, was Star Trek The Original Series... And then 4 p.m. on was the traditional after-school cartoons. You know, Voltron, Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe Transformers. So essentially just a solid block of television to keep me basically in front of the television. It meant no babysitter was required for me. 
Like many Gen X people, I was put in front of the TV and left alone with babysitter that plugged in. Now, just as a sidebar, I really want to put this on the table. The cartoons were hosted by this local clown named Sammy B. Good. Now, there would be other afternoon kids show hosts, but Sammy B. Good was like a freaking rock star in this town. I mean, he was the David Bowie of the elementary school circuit here locally. Sammy B. Good would do a balloon release. He would get a bunch of helium balloons, tie usually a Thundercats figure or something like that to them, and let it float away. And it would land wherever it landed, so somebody would find this awesome Thundercats figure. And I kept watching and watching, and it just never quite got to me. And I'm still a little bit bitter about that. I mean, I'm sitting here telling you I'm feeling bitter towards this TV clown who's probably unemployed, or working a dead-end job somewhere else, thinking about his glory days. I'm bitter towards this clown. It is a first-world problem. But I want to get it on air here, because it just helps to get it out, you know? Here's the thing, though. This is the reason I mentioned the scheduling. With Star Trek airing at 3... I only got to watch during the summer. Because during the school year, my school didn't even get out till 3.30. I wouldn't be home till at best 3.45. So during the school year, it was basically the end credits of Star Trek and then Sammy B. Good in cartoons. So I got to see Baylock's face and the dancing Orion Slave Girl many, many, many times. But however, I do want to talk about specifically the summer of 1985. It's one of the clearest time frames I remember watching it on Channel 33. Basically, Trek would start at 3, I would be sitting there through Trek, through the cartoons, until 6pm. Basically, a solid block of time when I am completely and totally occupied. And here's the thing, I want to talk about some of the standout episodes of the summer of 1985 from a 7-year-old version of me. I was a few months shy of the maturity milestone of 8 years old, so, you know, not completely bereft of maturity. But ultimately, the episodes that I remember clearly grabbing my attention and making me think or making me rethink things. The first is actually still my favorite episode of the original series, and that is the Corbomite Maneuver. Sir, contact with an object. It's moving toward us. Captain's log, stardate 1512.2. The Enterprise and crew are held captive by a strange alien vessel. Evasive maneuvers, Mr. Sulu. Object change direction too, sir. Keeps coming at us. It's blocking the way. Regretfully, your ship must be destroyed. We grant you one minute. What are you all out of your minds? End of watch. It's the end of everything. What are you, robots? Wound up toy soldiers. Don't you know when you're dying? No time for you, your theories, your quaint philosophies. I intend to challenge your actions and my medical records. I'll state that I warned you about Bailey's condition. Now there's no bluff. Anytime you can bluff me, Doctor. Six. Five. Four, three, two, one. This episode had a mind-blowing twist that really, really made me rethink things as a kid. That Baylock was this wee little guy who was actually, well, hopefully kind of harmless. That we could easily misunderstand the universe around us. It taught me to look deeper. It taught me to rethink things in a different light. To maintain various perspectives on any given problem. It remains a favorite today now for different reasons. Not only is the twist great, but to watch Kirk sit in basically this pressure cooker scenario and watch Bailey lose his mind and kind of, real honestly, if we're being honest, he's saying what the audience is thinking, that we're all going to freaking die. Why is nobody panicking? It was definitely a, a big standout because of the twist and kept me more intrigued in Star Trek because of that twist, looking for more of the same. Next up is the two-parter, The Menagerie. Captain's Log, Stardate 1512.2. Why does Spock want to take us to that one forbidden world in all the galaxy? His former captain, mutilated by a recent space disaster, unable to speak or move. 
I have never disobeyed your orders before, Captain. I know it is treachery against Captain Kirk, but I must do this. No vessel under any condition, emergency or otherwise, is to visit Thomas Four. And to do so is the only death penalty left on our books. There's a false entry in the log right now which doesn't jive with the established facts. How do you explain that? I can't, but to question Spock of all people. Doctor, as senior officer present, I present myself to you for arrest. You're a perfect choice. The Menagerie is nothing short of nightmare fuel on a lot of levels. For one thing, you have Pike in his condition, being stuck in a chair, unable to move or react beyond the couple of beeps. That is a terrible, terrible fate. You also have the horror of the actual physical monsters that the Telosians present. On top of the idea of this all-encompassing, all-consuming mental mind control that they can place on you, and you have to really start to question reality. Did they leave the planet, or are they still in Pike's head showing him what he wants? It hurts the head if you really go too far into it, and at seven years old, it caused me to go too far into it and gave me a basically the cold sweats. It freaked me out. Next on my standout of 1985 list was Charlie X. Captain's log, stardate 1533.7. We have taken aboard an unusual passenger, the sole survivor of a transport crash 14 years ago. Are you a girl? Oh, Charlie's our new darling, our darling, our darling. Charlie's our new darling. We know not what you'll do. She could love me. She's not the girl, Charlie. But if I did what you said, if I was gentle. Charlie, there are a million things in this universe you can have, and there are a million things you can't have. That's the way things are. Look, I'm off duty at 1400. Why don't you join me in recreation room six, deck three? You got a deal, friend. You're responsible for what happened to the Antares. Why? Answer me. Well, they weren't nice to me. What about us, Charlie? Charlie X made me want to use powers, basically like using the Force, except making a goony face when I do it. The fact that I could enact something with my will was kind of tempting, and I would, you know, sometimes try to throw it on the table. You never know. But I had to cut that out as somebody told me that if I really got hit in the back of the head by doing that face, it would stay that way, and I did not want that happening. That's a little awkward. Imagine that yearbook photo. And the last episode I'll put on the table, and yes, this is going somewhere... Outside of just highlighting these episodes, I am going towards a greater point, so bear with me. But the last episode I'll put on the table is Bread and Circuses. Captain's Log, Stardate 4040.7. We've run across one of the strangest examples of parallel planet development. What are we seeing? 20th century Rome? Don't move! It's been a long time since I've watched barbarians die in the arena. Fight you, pointed air freak! dying not strangers do you know why you're not afraid to die spock you're more afraid of living let's go for this evening i was told i am your slave command me This 
one like the Corbomite maneuver really had that twist ending where they weren't talking about the sun in the sky. They're talking about the son of God and the idea of the religion being such a relevant part of the episode. Now, I live in what's known as the buckle of the Bible belt. I'm, I mean, churches are on every corner. Churches, stoplights, and strip malls, that's that's my town. So I didn't escape religion at all. And it was kind of a relevant part. And to have that play into the science fiction aspect. Now, I, of course, I'm seven years old. I don't get the full brunt of what Bread and Circuses is saying and doing. But at seven years old, that twist blew my mind that Star Trek could still bring something new to the fold. Now, to go into the school year, while the summer of 85 was all about Star Trek... Voltron, He-Man, G.I. Joe, and Transformers, the school year kind of abbreviated that. Again, I was coming home, credits from Star Trek are on, but I wasn't getting my Trek fixed. I wanted more, and luckily for me, in the 80s, there was DC Comics, and there's Star Trek ongoing comic book, which kind of became, quote-unquote, my Star Trek in a lot of ways. Of course, the DC Comics ongoing was set following Wrath of Khan and following through the other movies, so the uniforms were different. You had this neat expanded cast, including Savick, who was uh, still one of my favorites. And you also had a little bit of continuity, ongoing multi-part stories, various subplots that proceeded through the book on a semi-ongoing basis. The thing is, I'm really glad I discovered these comics. Not only am I still a Star Trek comic fan, but it showed to me one of the main reasons that Star Trek can't be killed. One of the magic aspects of Star Trek. Because in comic books, there's no special effects. There's no thinking about the budget of how we're going to make something work on screen. There's just simply pens and pencils and whatever is in the imagination of the artist and writer. And that is the key, people. Star Trek has imagination. If you look at some of the episodes that Star Trek has put out, things like Cat's Paw, Metamorphosis, Patterns of Force, City on the Edge of Forever, at the core of it, if you were to pitch these episodes without the real presentation that we see in the show, well, it would sound like just something that's batshit crazy. Let's take Cat's Paw. Basically, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy come down to a haunted house. They meet a quote-unquote witch who chases them as a cat. Okay, okay, just the elevator pitch alone sounds like just complete horseshit, but it ends up being a okay episode. Cat's Paw is maybe not the best example. Let's go with City on the Edge of Forever, one of the most revered Star Trek episodes, and for a good reason. But if you take away the knowledge of the show and somebody was to say, well, we go back in time to make sure that somebody doesn't screw up the time frame and make sure that somebody dies in the process to keep it going, it just doesn't sound compelling. And yet, watching the episode, those aspects are the most compelling part. The fact that Kirk must let Edith Keeler meet her fate in order to keep the universe intact The fact that Dr. McCoy, a reasonable man, goes back in time under the influence of a drug and just jacks this stuff up, and this is now on his shoulders, something he'll live with, even though it's never really put head on in the show, this is something that's going to exist between Kirk and McCoy. If not for McCoy, Kirk never would have met Edith Killer. This wouldn't be like having his heart ripped out. It's all done so well. Because we take the most far-fetched ideas on Star Trek, and then it's put through the filter of good, solid idea building. We're talking South Park, Family Guy level of absurdity in the core idea that's being made into something relevant. Metamorphosis. Let me throw that pitch at you. This cloud is keeping a guy alive because it's in love with him. That's right. That's the basic idea of metamorphosis. Yet it's made to work. It's not only made to be good sci-fi, and it's excellent, excellent sci-fi, but it works on just a standard drama level. Not only do we get on board because it's well-written, it's a great grand idea written down so we can process it, we're already on board because it's set within the normal framework of being on a starship. So we've already swallowed the pill of, of oddity by accepting, yes, this is a starship that explores the galaxy. 
we're ready for pretty much anything. Once we get on the starship wagon train, well, we're saddled up, kids. So here's the other half of that equation. Not only do we take those really grand out there ideas and bring them down to a certain level and process them, we care about them because we have these ongoing characters that are experiencing this. We have Captain Kirk, we have Mr. Spock, we have Dr. McCoy, we have Scotty, we have people who are affected by this, and people we are connected to because we saw them last week and the week before. And because we know these characters, even though I would argue that we have a surface level understanding of them at best, but because we are familiar with them, because we know their names, their faces, where they're stationed, we now have emotional connection, we now have an acceptance of the concept of Starship's travel, we're ready to indulge into some of these weird ideas, and because of these components, it's made into a form that we really can digest. It's made into a thinking man's science fiction show by simply allowing the ideas to go anywhere they need to go because we're already grounded by the characters and we're already processing it through those characters. Because it doesn't matter what your idea is, if you don't care about the characters that are interacting, you're already two steps behind the game. Now, as a kid, I conceived of my own Star Trek fan fiction, as many kids will that involve the son of Kirk and Mr. Spock. And the thing is, these characters get to you. These characters are archetypes in a lot of ways, but they're also nuanced at the same time. So there's different levels that you're going to perceive at different ages and different stages of your life. As a kid, Kirk was the man. He had all that swagger, and I wanted that swagger. I wanted it bad. Now, Kirk is this very nuanced, very experienced leader who carries a lot on his shoulders, and that shows in William Shatner's portrayal. And he has two exceptional wingmen, Spock and McCoy. You couldn't ask for better guys to have on your side. Who wouldn't want these here? You're a badass leader. And you've got two very different advisors. And, and let's be honest, the Spock and McCoy bromance is very, very much overlooked. But you also have characters like Scotty who keeps the ship together. Thanks to engineering, the thing's not imploding. You're welcome. Stop laughing at the red shirts. They're relevant. You also have Sulu guiding the ship. And the cast just fits the roles. The cast is also a kind of a big component. But ultimately, the characters are the part that really grab us. And that translates into the comics. That's the thing. The characters fulfill their roles in the comics, meaning they can exist beyond the actors themselves. And probably because those actors clearly define their characters. And that's a whole other level of buy-in. If Star Trek had the same Starship theme every week, we would still have a certain level of buy-in with some of the absurd ideas that get filtered in. And before you think I'm bashing the show, let me be clear, when I say absurd ideas, that's out-of-the-box science fiction. It's complimentary. But let's say that it exists in a realm where, yes, we're looking at a starship each week, but it's a completely different cast. So we have a certain level of buy-in, but we don't necessarily care all that much about the characters. The Twilight Zone seemed to go ahead and get away with it, but I don't think the Twilight Zone dealt with the certain levels that we're dealing with in Star Trek. So yeah, of course, the characters are important. We invest because we accept the starship concept, but we invest more because we accept that these characters are there, that we know them, that we can go on this journey with them. Now, in my opinion, just to talk about the characters a bit, only Leonard Nimoy could be Spock. Zachary Quinto does a fine job. He's his own character. There's nothing wrong with his version of Spock, but Leonard Nimoy has a distinct look to him, a distinct demeanor. Spock would have been a completely different character without Leonard Nimoy, hands down. Likewise, DeForest Kelly gave a certain gravity and likable nature to what is a cranky doctor character in space. He's a country doctor. You kind of get an everyman feeling from DeForest Kelly in a way that you don't with some of the other cast members. And of course, there's Shatner. He's known to be big and overacting. And you know what? I'm kind of tired of that, that cliche being thrown against him. Of course he's overacting. Of course he's broad. He's the captain. 
the captain of a starship. He's the highest point of command and the highest ranked representative of Starfleet in any galaxy he's in. He's in charge. He's responsible for being a diplomat, a leader, a tactician, and sometimes a warrior. So yes, you want somebody who's going to overact. If he was weepy or soft-spoken, it just wouldn't work. You can't have Clark Kent in this role. You've got to have Superman. And how does Superman look? Bold attire. He stands out. He speaks with his actions and his abilities. And that is Captain Kirk. And I will say, if Shatner hadn't overplayed Kirk at times, the softer, more introspective moments, his nuanced performances, and yes, they are there. They are there in spades. Those just wouldn't work the same way. But in that is kind of a sub-point. One of the other things that help it work is that you're roped in in different levels. Depending on the age, depending on your perspective. As youngsters, we look at the broad strokes, these sort of adventurers going out into space, discovering things and discovering villains and fighting villains and firing photon torpedoes, but... As we get older, we start seeing the more human aspects of them. We pick up some of the more esoteric, metaphoric questions of it all. We grow to like the idea of this intelligent alternative versus the straight-up action of other sci-fi shows. And for me, at least, I grew to invest in the friendship and camaraderie of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And at a technical level, this is just genius. These three, these actors, for one thing, work perfectly together, but ultimately the characters allow for this genius exposition. You have Spock that's a foil, McCoy is a counterfoil. McCoy is funnier, he's wittier, he's kind of like our dad. He's a little bit grumpy, probably sits around in his underwear in front of the TV and drinks beer. Or you have Spock who dissects everything and throws out these various alternatives, pseudoscience alternatives in most cases, but alternatives. So not only does this kind of act as exposition, it also allows things to exist as grounded and realistic, that there's thought processes applied to what's happening here. And basically what they act as, they act as stomach acid in a way, helping us digest some of the bigger ideas that are being put on the table as far as the intelligence factor, but also to accept some of the more out there science fiction ideas and bring them down to a certain level and give them a certain weight and a certain tangibility. And this trio allows all these ideas to be discussed in an entertaining way, in a way that moves the plot along, but also lets it be a real thing. So while Kirk is the main character, he has this angel and devil type thing going on with most of his main command decisions. Now bear with me here, because this is also my 39th birthday. And I want to talk about how Star Trek has brought things to my life, how it's influenced me. Mr. Spock showed me how to approach and solve problems with logic to look at them from different angles, to process it in different various ways. McCoy, I took witticism and kind of the way to kind of argue with myself. So while I'm dissecting it with logic, there should be a human nature in there because I'm not a, you know, dead inside person. As cheesy as it sounds, these two ended up being very strong male role models on me. Father figures, uncle figures, I guess would be a better way to put it. Ultimately, the idea that Star Trek presents, this idea that humanity got his shit together and that we're maybe not singing kumbaya, but we're looking at different ways of processing our problems and moving beyond ourselves into other realms, that's a hopeful future. In a day and age when we can't go a day without hearing something dreadful on the news, to think about the idea that that future has any sort of potential, even in the realm of fiction, kind of helps one get through. Star Trek absolutely and totally created a lot of my creativity. The Phase 2 idea I talked about was one of the first times I ever started really developing a full-on storyline. Developing a thought process, a narrative thread, if you will. But you know what? As important as all of that is, the thing is, I can sit down and watch Star Trek, any episode of the original series, and I have complete and total joy. I mean, sure, I've just spent a little bit deconstructing certain elements of why Star Trek's bulletproof, so to speak, but ultimately, to me, it's the joy it brings, and it's complete, it's unadulterated. 
I could sit and watch Star Trek and have a complete smile on my face the whole time. So, you know, as, as much as I don't like having 40 in the hopper here, 39 looking down the barrel at 40, I can have joy in the fact that I took today to talk about Star Trek and the joy that it brings and kind of deconstruct and talk about some of the best aspects of the show. And I want to bring that to a another point here. After seeing Star Trek Beyond over the summer, and slight spoiler here if you have not seen Star Trek Beyond, but there's a moment where we see a photo of the original cast, and I believe the picture itself was a promotional picture from Star Trek V, and it got me a little choked up and it dawned on me just how immortal this franchise is. I mean, we've lost DeForest Kelly, we've lost Leonard Nimoy, we have lost James Doohan, Majel Barrett, we've lost big pieces of the Star Trek cast, but these people are immortal. They'll never be seen as themselves, but they're immortal. Their characters that they created are going to be with us for generations. 50 years from now, nobody's really going to know who I am. I'm probably going to be fairly well forgotten, but people will remember Mr. Spock. They'll remember Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy. All the podcasts will be, you know, dust. Who knows what kind of technology they'll have, but the prime directive will be scripture. People will quote the prime directive and live long and prosper and and infinite diversity and infinite combinations. These are still concepts that'll be in play. And I'm good with that. That's what makes me happy today is that this franchise that's bringing me joy will be bringing joy to generations. As cheesy as it sounds, you and I are kind of the last component of why Star Trek will never, ever go away. Because we're the fans. We're the numbers. I know it sounds a little bit cheesy. It's like unicorns farting rainbows. And it sounds like angels singing, but it's true. Joy spreads joy. Fandom spreads fandom. And joy infuses the material. It creates more and more fans, which is what happened when that show hit syndication. Coming back to my original point of the cancellation. Much like I received it from my parents, our children will receive the love of Star Trek from us. We are a part of Star Trek. We are the thing that keeps it going. We're going to turn this into some sort of hereditary disease of awesomeness. And that's so cool, the thought process that our numbers, our fandom, is what makes Star Trek Star Trek. We're in the mix. We're part of the DNA of Star Trek lore. So I started this episode talking about the numbers and how they just didn't add up for the network, but our numbers in fandom, well, they're legion, aren't they? We have conventions just to talk to each other about Star Trek. Our numbers resurrected the show as a movie series, and that led to Next Generation, that led to DS9, that led to Voyager. So in the end, it's not the number of advertisers, it's the number of fans. And this show has enough fans and enough of their children will become fans and their children that you really cannot kill Star Trek because it's such a solidly built foundation. And while I've kind of shown you how that foundation is built, it's ultimately the love of that that's going to keep this going. So Star Trek is 50 this year, I'm 39, and I'm good with that. That's good with me. We're both loved in our own ways, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to be a part of it, and I'm thankful for you for joining me as I kind of rant about Star Trek. Yes, I came here to gush about how well-built Star Trek is, and I think I've done that. So I will be back in one week to talk about Back to the Future. I'm going to go have some of my birthday celebration. Until then, I'm bringing the USS Point Break in for a landing. Live long and prosper, my friends, and be excellent to each other. Dave Does Podcasts is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. The show does not draw profit from the characters or concepts discussed. 
All opinions are those of the host and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. The copyrights for any music or sound clips lie with the copyright holders. They are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended, as this show most certainly does not draw revenue. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.